This is Here It Now on Prairie Public. I'm Doug Hamilton. And later on in our program, Ashley Thornburg will join us to take us on a visit of the NDSU archives. She'll also tell us about Theater Tales, uh, an innovative little business that makes uh, children's birthday parties into shows. And, of course, we'll have Meryl Pepcorn's Dakota Date book. But we'll start today with uh, some very good news for the folks who work at the Family Therapy Center at NDSU. They've developed an award-winning LGBT affirmative training program, and they've received a grant to share that program. And joining us today to talk about this is Tom Stone Carlson. He is the uh, uh, graduate program coordinator for the LGBT Affirmative Therapy Program and a member of the NDSU Family Therapy Center group. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks, Doug. Uh, What uh, is the Family Therapy Center? (laughs) Well, the Family Therapy Center is um, connected to the graduate program, as you mentioned, the graduate program in couple and family therapy at NDSU. And uh, the Family Therapy Center is primarily the place where students in our graduate program who are learning to be therapists get their clinical experience. And the um, Family Therapy Center provides therapy services to members of the Fargo-Moorhead community at an affordable rate sliding fee scale so that services could be available to people who wouldn't normally be able to afford it. Now, the LGBT Affirmative Therapy Program that you and your colleagues, uh, Christy McGeorge and Kristen Benson, developed won the National Training Award from the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy this past fall. Kudos to you. Yeah, thank you. Okay. So obviously, that makes it an easier sell to a, a grantor like the Otto Bremer Foundation or the FM Area Foundation. Right. Yeah. Just Just to clarify one thing, it was the the Couple and Family Therapy Program itself won the award Excellent. for our focus on providing LGBT affirmative therapy. So in addition to that uh, LGBT affirmative piece. So what is affirmative therapist training? Good question. Um, so affirmative therapy involves um, the practice of therapy that's connected with therapists um, providing a safe and welcoming environment for members of the LGBT community. And that means, um, really it means um, working with people in a way that is supportive of um, of their um, relationships and their sexual orientation, that is about holding positive beliefs about um, uh, their relationships and sexual orientation or gender identity. And then also involves being aware of the the, the struggles and discriminations that members of the LGBT community might face because of being a, um, a sexual minority or because of their gender identity. The grant money that you received uh, allows you or enabled you to provide these training programs. You've already had one the 1st of March. Yes. You've got another one coming up April 12th. They're free. Mm-hmm. Uh, people need to sign up uh, for it, however. Uh, what uh, was the response to the March 1 program? Well, we had um, uh, 20 people show up to our first training, and we um, capped the training to that initial training to 20. Um, and uh, from the just from the evaluations we received so far, the uh, training uh, went really well. It was received really favorably. Um, we already have um, uh, over 30 people signed up for the April 12th training. And that training is going to be in partnership with Prairie St. John's, and so we'll be pr- pr- um, providing training to their staff. Um, as well. Now, is there any research into the percentage of counselors or therapists uh, uh, who hold negative beliefs about LGBT uh, issues? There, there have been some studies, and these have been studies that are older studies, but um, studies that showed that um, therapists um, did hold um, negative beliefs about or biases uh, about the LGBT community. Um, but more recent, more recent studies um, show that therapists actually have quite positive beliefs about members of the LGBT community. Um, the problem is that they're not being trained to be able to have the skills and the knowledge they need to provide uh, competent therapy. Well, that that begs also the question, is there any reliable estimate of the size of this population in like the Fargo-Moorhead area or North Dakota or whatever? Well, the question probably is a reliable estimate. There have been some estimates and there was one that just recently came out, um, as I think maybe you saw on the Fargo forum, uh, that said that North Dakota had the lowest 
um, percentage of, in the nation. I, I don't remember the exact percent, but it was low. And I think the problem with any kind of survey research is um, you're not going to get an accurate number that there's um, – um, concerns about um, people being um, identifying as uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender for safety reasons, and so there's always going to be an underreporting. Um, I think the in the overall United States, there's always been an estimate of around ten percent, ten to eleven percent, and my guess is that um, North Dakota would be um, much higher than than the the current uh, data that just came out. And would you say that uh, the NDSU campus would, would fit the national model? Or, or Yeah, I mean, it may not be exactly the national, but I, um, I think there's a, certainly a, a much larger number or percentage of um, members of the LGBT community at NDSU than most people would imagine. You touched on this, but th- there is a licensing process for therapists. Mm-hmm. Uh, does that current process involve any awareness about LGBT issues? Well, most most licensing requirements are based on um, accreditation standards that uh, training programs have, and all accrediting accreditation standards require that um, graduate training programs in counseling, or in our case, in family therapy, that we are required to prepare students to work with diverse uh, clients, including um, um, LGBT clients, and so the standards um, indicate that programs should do this and that that's an important part of the training program. The problem is is that uh, the research shows that uh, programs just aren't just aren't doing a good job uh, preparing students to work with LGBT clients. So that might give NDSU a bit of a leg up uh, training its students for the world that is. <laughs> sure, we like to think of it that way. <laughs> okay. Uh, how available is LGBT therapy in North Dakota or Northwest Minnesota? I mean, that's a good question. Um, I think uh, we know that in this community and in most communities that there is a significant need for more therapists who are um, identify as affirmative therapists who are qualified to provide affirmative therapy. And that's really what this grant is about. This grant is about um, uh, making sure that therapists in this community um, are prepared and qualified um, to provide affirmative services so that a, um, a gay or lesbian client or a bisexual or transgender client um, can um, not have to struggle with finding a therapist and not have to worry about going into a therapist's office and asking whether they're accepting, whether they're welcoming. And, um, you know, unfortunately that still happens today where um, a, a you know, an LGBT client might go to a therapist and the therapist will say, I'm sorry, but I don't think I can work with you because of my beliefs. Wow. And that's, I mean, that's really unfortunate. Well, I, I realize you can't do the whole program for us because <laughs> you deal with hours and we're talking about minutes here. But could you give us a sense of what the LGBT affirmative therapy program is comprised of? Well, so um, our our training is kind of uh, – um, Two parts. We have a initial training that you mentioned. These trainings that happen in March and in April is a three-hour training that really is about providing therapists with the the foundation, the groundwork that they need to um, understand um, what it means to provide affirmative therapy, um, to look at and have a better understanding of some of the barriers that um, members of the LGBT community face. Um, in trying to find therapists and also some of the barriers related to the discrimination that they might still experience on a daily basis and the impact that that has on their experience of of well-being um, in their personal lives and relationships. And then the main piece of our training is really about helping therapists do the self-work that they need to do um, to explore their own beliefs, their own biases, and how to make sure that they don't – that those biases – or those beliefs can be changed so they can be welcoming and affirming. And where do those biases come from generally? <laughs> well, that's part of the training that mm-hmm. we do. Um, but uh, really those, those biases and beliefs come from just living in society. And you know, all of us grow up in a society that, where we're socialized to have certain beliefs uh, about certain groups of people. Um, whether we ask for, to be socialized or not, all of us have been socialized. And so part of our work is helping kind of raise awareness to where those beliefs might have come from at the society level and family as well. 
Are uh, issues of discrimination against lesbians, gays, bisexuals, and transgender people on the wane? That's, I mean, I, that's a really good question. I mean, I think in some ways um, the answer is uh, yes, in some ways the answer is no. Um, I think um, we have evidence still today that um, that discrimination is still kind of unfortunately exists and alive. Um, evidence of what just happened in the North Dakota legislature, for example, where um, the um, bill to um, make discrimination uh, against based on sexual orientation or gender identity illegal, right, that, that didn't pass. And so I think there is still some discrimination. On the other hand, I think we know that um, younger generations um, of people, um, this issue of sexual orientation doesn't really matter to them. I mean, that they believe that people should be accepted for who they are. And so I think that, that, that it's a yes and no answer. And I think I'm really hopeful about the future uh, changes that are going to come about. Well, I noticed on the I went on the web and uh, the and uh, NDSU has a very high score on the campus climate index about this issue, uh, the sexual orientation score five of five stars, which means it's very accepting, I, I believe, and the gender identity expression score four and a half of five stars, very high nationally in terms of this. And uh, to what do you attribute that? How does NDSU model diversity for its students, faculty, and staff? Yeah, I believe that those ratings are based on not necessarily evaluations of um, LGBT students, faculty, and fa- fa- uh, faculty and staff. Excuse me, um, but it's more of a rating that looks at policies that that I institutions see. have, programs that institutions have, and so NDSU does have some programs and policies that um, are really um, trying to ensure that that. NDSU is a welcoming and safe place for members of the LGBT community. So we're definitely making progress in that area. I think we've got some some work to do as well. I, I was uh, doing a little research, as I mentioned to you, and, and, and I came across something that turned on a light bulb in my head, and, and that was uh, how many times somebody who's LGBT has to kind of go through the uh, act of saying who they are. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, you might have a student who comes to NDSU from a high school where they were, where they came out. And now they come to NDSU, I've got to come out again. Then I graduate, I get a job, I've got to come out. <laughs> right. Uh, that that's keeps, that, that's something most people don't have to do. <laughs> right. And that's, that's something that um, is talked about in the literature a lot, that there's these additional, additional stressors that come along with being, um, a person, uh, a minority person, regardless of whether that be race, gender, or sexual orientation. When we're talking about sexual orientation, um, there's a concept for that that's called gay-related stress. Um, And I I think um, what that means is that everybody deals with a certain level of stress, everyday stress. But when you're a minority person, when you're an LGBT person, there's additional stressors that go along with living with uh, the complications, the discriminations that go along every day. And one of those is what you just talked about, the um, mindfulness, the constant mindfulness of whether you have to come out in a particular situation and how often you have to come out in a particular situation. And that's something that you're a, a heterosexual person. You never really have to deal with. You know, you don't have to think about, am I going to come out to this person today? And that's a, that's a stressor that therapists need to be aware of. Now, some days, sometimes I think uh, uh, people, when they go to the doctor, if they're a guy, they want a guy doctor. If they're a woman, they might want a woman doctor for whatever reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, do LGBT clients want a, an LGBT therapist? Well, this is an area where there's actually been some research. And one of the things that the research shows is that members. Of, what's most important for members of the LGBT community is to have a therapist who is, is welcoming and accepting of their sexual orientation or their gender identity. And that's the most important thing. Uh, and um, so members of the LGBT community um, don't necessarily have a preference for, at least in this research, a preference for... Um, seeing a gay or lesbian or bisexual or transgender client. But they really want to know that the therapist they're working with is is affirming of their sexual orientation or gender identity. Again, I did a little research. In the 70s, the American Psychiatric Institute took homosexuality off the list of mental illnesses. Uh, and, and most secular psychiatrists and psychologists don't practice conversion therapy now. 
but there still are reparative therapy people. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, there's an awful controversy about that. Uh, yes. Is that done around here? You know, I don't know, I don't know firsthand um, about whether that's practiced, but I have heard secondhand. I have heard from members of the LGBT community and from uh, former uh, clients that I've worked with that they have um, uh, talked with therapists who said that they would offer um, reparative therapy if they were to seek out services from from that person, and um, this is this is a, an unfortunate thing that still happens today, where um, people believe that it's okay to um, uh, base their their therapy with a particular group of people based on their own personal biases and beliefs about whether or not it's okay to be um, gay or lesbian. And the issue has already been decided, as you mentioned, way back in 1973. It's 40 years old. Right. And it's still an issue that keeps, you know, coming up. There are fewer and fewer therapists that practice it, but it's it's still an issue. And for me, I just think of the damage that it causes when a person comes to see a therapist and the therapist says, um, either I can't work with you because of my beliefs about your sexual orientation or your gender identity, um, or um, tries to change those that sexual orientation, tries to help, tries to encourage them to feel some shame about who they are. Ouch. And, and I mean, that's, that's really sad that that still goes on today. And that's, you know, part of what we're trying to change with this grant is, you know, we, I don't envision that we're going to be working with many therapists that would practice conversion therapy. <laughs> but it's really important that we help people understand how to create the most welcoming, the most safe, and the most affirming environment. If there are therapists, uh, counselors out there who'd like to take advantage of this second opportunity, April 12th, is there still space? Uh, yes, I believe that there's still space. It's, and how can they get get to you? <laughs> so they could um, they could go on the on the web our website for the Family Therapy Center. Um, they can do that by going to the NDSU uh, webpage and then uh, typing in Family Therapy Center. So NDSU.edsu backslash Family Therapy Center. Um, or they could contact uh, the Family Therapy Center directly by calling 231-8534. Well, we will also put the link to your NDSU website on our Hear It Now webpage. Great. Thank, thank you. you very much for joining us today. Professor Tom Stone Carlson with the NDSU Family Therapy Center. More in a moment. Tonight's television lineup on Prairie Public starts with the loneliest animals on nature. Then at 8 Central, Nova presents Smartest Machine on Earth. And at 9, the world's biggest bomb is the subject of Secrets of the Dead. Tune in tonight on Prairie Public. This is Here It Now on Prairie Public. I'm Doug Hamilton, and you're listening to a little acoustic alchemy called American English. That's the name of the CD, Acoustic Alchemy. Well, you want to talk about a birthday party. Lynette Bergen has a Master of Arts degree in theater from the University of North Dakota, and her ambition is to bring theater to everyone. And to that end, she started a business she calls Theater Tales, which turns a child's birthday party into a stage production. Lynette visited with our Ashley Thornburg. And singing. Certainly the norm at a birthday party. Our pirates from the deck. But cleaning a pirate ship? That's a bit of a twist. I'm tired of swallowing the poop deck. Luckily for all 14 little ladies on board, they're only cleaning an imaginary poop deck. Arg! if we don't find it soon, I'm going to walk the plank. But whether or not they realize it, they are doing something real and far more important. They're learning. This is a, an activity that let all the kids bond together. Mm-hmm. And what we thought the play would do is bring them together in terms of everybody having a role and acting as a team. So that was something that was very engaging for us. 
That's Rich Scheinfeld, whose face is beaming with pride at his eight-year-old daughter, Sydney. Well, the map says three paces that way. He and his wife, Heidi, hired Lynette Bergen to come to Sydney's party and do what she does best, the theater. It says, off we go enjoy the show. So you're going to walk forward and wave with one of your hands. Let's go, off we go, enjoy the show. And when you get to the edge of the stage, go like this. We hope you liked our story. Now we're going to wave and walk backwards. Lynette started the company Theater Tales about two years ago. Think of it like a play that comes to you, as in, in your own living room, or in this case, a rented party room. Very engaging. All the kids are having a lot of fun. It's really nice to see how they're playing and how they're all working together toward the theme of the play. That theme? Pirates. It's one of the four plays Lynette wrote and choreographed. She even made the costumes herself. It's really kind of a formula. Um, You always have to have uh, group lines, a group task that they're trying to accomplish, and something standing in their way, and a solution at the end, and everybody has to be friends. That's, that's all of my requirements. It's likely no surprise that for Lynette, theater is life. Well, my first sort of cheesy aha moment was in high school. They were doing a musical, and everybody had a song solo, and I, I wanted a song solo. I was, you know, in eighth grade at the time, and I thought, you can do that in high school? You can be in a musical and get a solo? I want to do that. You know, that was just simply me wanting a solo. And then um, in college, I was doing a summer stock production, and we went up to Winnipeg to watch Les Mis. And it was one of those moments that it was just like the stars aligned and the just my brain just exploded, going, I have to do this for the rest of my life. I have to. I had no idea you could move people um, in theater. I, you know, because before that I had done Anything Goes and a lot of the 40s, 50s type musicals. Everything's, you know, boy meets girl, boy loses girl. Everybody, you know, boy gets girl back because the boy's an idiot. And, you know, but they were just fun. I, I didn't know you could really move people. For the better part of 20 years since that aha moment, she's devoted herself to spreading the benefits of being on stage. Well, maybe we'll find half the treasure. All right. All right. It gives them confidence to say something in a crowd and to express their ideas and express just, you know, freedom of expression and to know that, um, you know, to get that applause. I mean, think about it. As adults, when do we ever get applause? We just don't, and it's so important. Captain, are you ever going to find the treasure? And uh, make-believe. I mean, they live in make-believe. I wish adults still lived in this world of make-believe. So, you know, I just think it. you can learn concepts that make sense because you're doing it, other than being told you're living it and you're doing it and you're acting it out so I think even you know as a learning tool it's it's priceless. As are the memories for Captain Sydney and her 13 first mates. Um, I really like being the head of the line and I like where I the, where we line up and we get to say our lines. It was just really fun. It was like the best experience. Was she right? Are you girls having fun? Yeah! For Here It Now, I'm Ashley Thornburg. That sounds like a lot of fun. You know, for kids who are older learning how to act, like in college, improv is really tough because they have a lot of difficulty kind of overcoming their inhibitions. Not such a problem with those kids at the birthday party. The news is next. For Prairie Public, I'm Danielle Webster. The House Judiciary Committee is studying a proposed constitutional amendment that could make it tougher to get citizen initiatives and referrals on the ballot. House Majority Leader Al Carlson's measure would require the sponsors to get 3% of the number of eligible voters to sign a petition before it's put on the ballot. That would increase the number to just over 20,000. Right now, the requirement is 2%, or about 13,500 signatures. Carlson's measure would require signatures from 27 of the state's 53 counties as well. This is not meant to inhibit people from changing law and changing or changing the work that we do, but it's meant to engage the citizens and to spread it out across the state. 
The measure would also prohibit paying any circulator on a per-signature basis, and it would require measures that would affect the state budget by $20 million or more to be on the November ballot and not the primary ballot. Activists don't like it, saying the measure will inhibit the public from initiating or referring measures. Leon Malberg is a Dickinson businessman who has been involved in several initiatives. Is the resolution solving a problem or creating one? Or is it just measured punishment for those who don't always agree with what is coming out of Bismarck? The Judiciary Committee did not take immediate action. The measure is HCR 3011. This week's snowstorm will likely bump up the risk of flooding in the Red River Valley. Tim Birchie of the Corps of Engineers in Fargo says the snow core samples were taken prior to the storm in the Southern Red and Cheyenne River basins. Water content was across uh, was across the south were uh, three to five inches. I would sure expect uh, to see the outlook uh, probably increase across the board. Um, you know, even uh, even with the lesser amounts in the Southern Valley, it did add some, and uh, and certainly the Cheyenne Basin then picked up a lot of moisture. And, and as we went north, so some of those northern ones as well. I don't know that we're going to get into any uh, numbers that'll uh, be very alarming, but I'm certainly um, you know it's it's bound to increase. We're later in the year, and we did nothing but add moisture. The next spring flood outlook is due out tomorrow. The last outlook two weeks ago said there was a 79% chance the river will reach major flood stage of 30 feet in Fargo. That's not considered difficult to handle. However, the city is making sure it has the equipment and supplies if it's needed. And the continuing lockout at American Crystal Sugar is leading lawmakers in neighboring Minnesota to consider a bill that would take action against the companies involved in these types of labor disputes. Minnesota State Representative Joe Atkins says his bill would extend unemployment benefits for the duration of a lockout and charge a penalty for the employer that initiated the action. Entities come in with big promises of job creation and stimulating the economy and then uh, take our money only to turn around and do the exact opposite. Lock people out, not let them work, cause uh, unemployment to go up and unemployment benefits to skyrocket. Minnesota AFL-CIO spokesman Steve Hunter says the impact from a lockout reaches well beyond those who are kept from working. Workers who aren't working aren't purchasing goods at their local merchants. The kids are stressed out. They don't do as well at school. So there is a community effect beyond just the workers themselves, and we think that by ensuring some economic security for the workers, we can help mitigate those community effects as well. In North Dakota, a split-state Supreme Court ruled that 420 locked-out American crystal sugar workers are eligible for unemployment benefits, reversing a lower court decision that could mean a payout of $4 million to the workers. In Minnesota and Iowa, the locked-out workers were eligible for unemployment, but their benefits have long since been exhausted. For Prairie Public, I'm Danielle Webster. This is Here at Now on Prairie Public. I'm Doug Hamilton, and I'm joined by Ashley Thornburg because we're going to talk about archives. Preserving our past is an attempt to make the future brighter, one of the functions of archiving. And a collection of history stands tucked away in a corner of North Fargo. And Ashley Thornburg joins me. And it's not just Fargo history. No, it's not. And what we're talking about is the archives office, which is north of NDSU. And really, there are two archives in here, the NDSU archives and the Institute for Regional Studies, whose focus includes really the Red River Valley, the entire state of North Dakota, and beyond that, the Plains of North America, which includes the Great Plains, which extends all the way down into Nebraska and up into the prairies of Manitoba. So it really is quite large in scope. And I had the opportunity to meet with the interim director, Trista Razor. Thank you so much for joining me today. How long have you been involved with the archives here? Okay, I was originally hired in June as the archivist, and then in November I became the interim director. What is an archivist? Uh, That's a good question. Not many people know. My main role is to collect historical documents, uh, help preserve the records so that they last as long as possible, and also to provide access to the public. Now, how are archives different from libraries? Nothing can be checked out. Um, Everything has to be viewed here. Uh, The main way that we're different from a library is that everything we have here is unique. Um, For example, if a library were to have a disaster and lost all their books, those could be easily replaced. However, if an archives had a disaster, nothing could be replaced. So that's the main difference, is everything here is unique and original. Well, that leads me to my next question here kind of perfectly. You have to preserve these things, I imagine, in a very specific way. Can you walk me through that process a little bit? 
Uh, sure, there's uh, uh, many different steps. The main one is to use archival storage materials, such as acid-free boxes and folders. Uh, these will help preserve the uh, individual items. Photographs are put into special plastic protective sleeves. These storage materials are very unique. It's not just something you pick up from Office Depot or whatever. Um, they're made specifically for archival materials. Where do you get all of the material. I mean, I'm just in one small room here, and this, this goes back several feet behind me. Where do you get this kind of wealth of material? Everything has been donated to us. We're technically two different archives. We have the university archives where we collect uh, materials from uh, NDSU, North Dakota State University. So these are all been transferred to us from various departments. So we have historical records going back to 1890 when the university was founded. And then we have the Institute for Regional Studies Archives, which is a collection of historical materials pertaining specifically to North Dakota um, and more specifically Fargo, but we do collect things from the entire state. Most of the materials have been donate to, donated to us from you know, families or cities or towns. Do you get any kind of personal donations, like love letters from World War II, or is this all supposed to be, you know, just factual? Oh, we do get those kind of things because, you know, they are um, significant to our hi human history. So we do have some things like that, you know. For example, we have a diary written by a teenager, and she talks a lot about uh, what she was grappling with, and this was from the 1920s, and it's very similar to what teenagers are going through today. And so, you know, that gives a good social history of just development over time. So, yes, we do like to get those sort of things as well. And how do you decide what gets kept, or do you keep everything that gets donated? Um, we keep most of what's given to us, but basically we're, we want to see if there's um, significant historical value to the materials. So we collect a lot of things pertaining to agriculture in the state, um, the growth and development. Uh, we have some county records, some town records, um, family histories, so things like that. People who use the archives, what are they? Is, is there any one thing that they mostly come here for, or is it really kind of a, a broad range of topics? Uh, there are quite a few different reason, reasons why people come in. A lot of people might be doing historical research. They may be writing an article or a book. Uh, they might be doing research on their family or their town. Um, or they might be doing research into property they own. Or they're a student and they have an assignment. So there's a lot of different reasons why people come in. Or it could just be curiosity. They just want to know more about something. Do you have to go through these materials then you know, and ensure the accuracy? I mean, is it kind of like Wikipedia where any anybody who can donate, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they know what they're talking about? Is Do you ever run into people donating things that aren't historically accurate? Um, well, what we're looking for are original documents. Um, so we're not really going to get forgeries because we're not, like, collecting things like the Constitution. What do you think is the role of the archives in, in a town? Um, well, archives are extremely important because they help us to remember our past and to know where we came from. It also helps create a sense of community. Um, if you think if we had no idea what people in Fargo were doing 50 or 100 years ago, what would, how, what would be the meaning of Fargo? How did we come here to be here? It also helps us not to forget, you know, sometimes the negative things that happened. For example, there was an article on Sunday in the Fargo Forum about the KKK in the region. And they used some documents that we had. So even though, you know, those are really hard issues to grapple with, it's important that we don't forget that these things happened. So preserving that memory, good and bad, is very important for a community. What made you want to become an archivist? Um, I've always loved history. I uh, got my undergraduate degree in history, but I didn't really want to become a teacher, so I thought about becoming a librarian. And it was actually while I was working on my library degree, I started taking the archivally focused classes and realized that I could do a lot with um, history without being a teacher. And it's been a lot of fun to work with historical documents and to preserve them for future generations to come. That's really meaningful to me since um, as a historian, I look back at older documents that previous generations have, have preserved. What do you think that people are learning by studying the past? They're learning about how their community came to be, uh, why we are the way we are today. Um, you know, it goes back to our roots, our agricultural roots here, which are still very strong. Is there something here that people probably don't even realize is here? Something that might surprise our listeners? Um, I would 
say probably how similar people were in the past. For example, when I was talking about the diary written by a teenager in the 1920s and how she was dealing with, you know, the breakup with a boyfriend and just the motion she was going through. And, you know, it's really similar today. So it, it helps you really connect with people in the past. Um, when you look at an old black and white photo, sometimes it's hard to connect to this person who's not smiling and wearing odd clothing. But really they were going through the same issues as we are today. Yeah, I can definitely see a lot. I mean, that's that very typical teenager thing to think is nobody understands how I feel. <laughs> you can prove them wrong. <laughs> it seems like more and more things are progressing into, you know, the, the digital age. Um, we're, we've been in this for a long time now. How do archives keep up with the changes in technology? It's really difficult challenge for archivists. Technology is changing quite rapidly. So you come across problems such as you might have a lot of digital documents, for example, on a floppy disk. Well, most computers these days cannot even read a floppy. So uh, one approach is to migrate old electronic records into new um, updated versions. For example, taking what's off the floppy, burning it onto a CD. Um, however, you know, it can be quite expensive. So it is something that a lot of archivists are grappling with. How do you get the money to do that? Sure, yeah, there are a lot of grants that we're always trying to apply for, so we're always looking out for ways to get money in for those kind of projects. Any way for um, just people who who love this kind of thing for them to get involved, or is this something that needs to be left in the hands of professionals? Well, there are some basic things um, that volunteers can do. For example, we have a volunteer right now um, in putting information on some maps we have so that we have a database. We have another volunteer currently who is transcribing some old Civil War diaries so that people can read the transcriptions because the handwriting can be kind of hard to read. So there are some ways that people can get involved. Anyone is welcome to come into the archives. I know it can seem kind of intimidating, but really we welcome everyone. You don't have to even have a specific reason. We have a, just a lot of great um, historical books here as well. Um, so if you just wanted to come in and browse the books that we have in our reading room, or you know maybe you just want to see some photos, or we even have things such as all the old um, yearbook, yearbooks for NDSU, uh, which range from 1907 to 1980. Um, you know, there's other fun things you might want to take a look at, like old course catalogs, see what classes your grandparents were taking. So I just want to encourage people to drop on by. Um, you don't need to make an appointment. As long as we're open, you're welcome to come in. And those hours, if you do want to stop in, are 8.30 to 4.30 during the school year and 7.30 to 4 in the summer. Coming up after the break, Trista takes me on a tour highlighting some of the treasures. arts programming here on Prairie Public. Know that it is supported in part by the North Dakota Council on the Arts, and we thank them. Here at Now would like you to contact us if you have comments, questions, or guest ideas. Give us a call at 1-888-755-6377 or write us at hearitnow at prairiepublic.org. Welcome back to Hear It Now. I'm Ashley Thornburg. If you're just joining us, before the break, we were talking to Trista Razor. She is the Interim Director of the Archives for NDSU and the Institute for Regional Studies. She gave Hear It Now a behind-the-scenes tour. Okay, we're back in the authorized personnel-only section. Yeah, this area is off-limits. Uh, when someone comes in, they tell us what they might want to look at, or we have them go through our online finding aids, which are descriptions of all of our collections, and then we can come back here and pull the materials for them. Okay. So what's back here that it needs to be kept separate from the public? For preservation purposes, we don't want people just coming back and browsing through things. It also protects things um, so things don't go missing. This fan that I can hear above me, uh, do you have to keep this room at a, at a fairly constant temperature? Does that have anything to do with historical preservation? Uh, yes, it is ideal to keep the temperature between 68 to 72 degrees. Um, you don't want uh, the documents going through big fluctuations in temperature. Um, it can make the paper brittle or, you know, warp photographs. So we do try to keep and maintain a consistent temperature in here. I imagine at some point you get more materials than can be stored in this building. Where is everything else? 
Uh, that's correct. We only have about half of our materials um, at the actual archives. We do have an off-site storage facility that we share with the library. Um, so we're always willing to go out there to bring back materials for people to look at. So um, that doesn't hinder access to anything. But yes, we do have another facility to store our materials. What kinds of precautions are in place in this building? Like you said, if something happens to a library, um, it's at least possible to replace those mm-hmm. books, however difficult that might be. Um, what do you do in the event of some kind of natural disaster here? Um, well, one important thing that was considered before the archives was put here is, you know, Fargo does flood a lot. So as far as this building has been here, um, floodwaters have not you know, gone over to threshold. So that's a very important thing to consider. What about things like fires? Is there anything you can do about that? Um, we do have a sprinkler system. Um, even though it's not good for things to get wet, um, many documents can be saved if they're drenched. And obviously it's better to dry out a document than to try to save ashes after it's been burnt. So that's a good thing that we have. And some of these have already gone through that digital transition? I would say about 10,000 of our photographs have actually been scanned. Um, the reason they were scanned be, was to be put online. We have a Digital Horizons website that other archives in the area also put photographs on. And we also have a Flickr account. And what's great about that is anyone in the world can see these photos, and they don't necessarily have to come to Fargo and to the archives to see them. So we've had people from as far away as Hong Kong and Russia actually email us about the photos that they saw on our website. Really, what were they searching for? Well, one of our first professors here on campus was by the name of Bali, and in about the very early 1900s, he visited Russia. Well, one of the scientists he visited there, um, there's an institute in Russia named after him, and one of the scientists there was doing a research project because they're celebrating, I think it's their 100 years or something like that. So she Googled his name, and then that connected her to our website. So she saw the photos of this uh, uh, researcher from Russia, and she emailed us saying if she could get copies. So what are these boxes that I'm looking at? Oh, uh, that's a collection of photographs from a photographer named Strand. Fairly popular collection. He was a photographer throughout the state. Do you have a lot that documents the flooding over time? Uh, we do have some great photographs of floods going back into the 1800s, which you know, are a lot of fun to look at. Um, just, you know, we've been dealing with this issue forever, so it's interesting to see how it was dealt with in the past and to see people in typical Victorian clothes and a boat going down a street in water. Is there ever the need, do you guys ever send out a call saying, we need photographs of this or historical documents on this or do you just put collections together based on whatever you get we don't necessarily put out calls for things but we're always welcome to donations um so we do get a lot of calls from people saying oh i you know found this photo album uh would you like to have it so you know we do want to make sure it pertains to north dakota but we're always willing to take a look at what people have to see if we'd like to have it oh and you do have some minnesota stuff here too it looks like Yeah, we do have a few things from Minnesota. We do try to concentrate on North Dakota, but of course we're right by Moorhead. So we do have a few things. For example, um, in our, we have a large collection of photographs of all the various towns in North Dakota, and we do have a few um, from the Minnesota side, such as Moorhead. The North Dakota Homes Collection. Mm -hmm. What is this? Uh, This is a great collection. It was taken, these photographs are of various homes in Fargo, uh, taken by a real estate agency, and they range from the 1910s to about the 1960s, and they are arranged by address. So if you own an older home, you might want to see if we have an old photo of it from maybe 50 or 60 or 70 years ago. So this is a pretty popular collection because it's always fun to see what your home might have looked like in the past. If somebody wanted to do that, let's say they live in an older home and they wanted Mm -hmm. a picture of their house, Mm -hmm. are these available for purchase or can anybody have a copy of anything in here? Yeah, we we can sell copies. We... um, You can make photocopies on our photocopy machine or we can do scans. So yes, we do uh, sell copies of materials. Is there anything that stands out in your mind as something that's one of the more requested personal use items? Uh, Yeah, probably our marriage and divorce and probate records, those are pretty popular. I think there's a lot of people who, uh, you know, they might want a record of their parents or their grandparents' marriage. One of those genealogical tendencies that a lot of us have, I would say. Mm -hmm. So you came here from California just to take this job. Um, What is it that struck you about the history of North Dakota that brought you here? 
what really struck me is the pioneering spirit of the area. That wasn't something I really was expecting. Um, growing up on the West Coast, I always kind of thought of uh, the Wild West. Um, but yeah, the West really extends all the way to the Mississippi. So it's been great to get to learn more about the early homesteaders and just uh, what people have to do to really deal with this environment out here. Yeah, it's uh, not necessarily known for being friendly at times. <laughs> no, I'm learning that through my first winter here. <laughs> okay, we found a box here on uh, former Governor George Sinner. Let's take a look at what's in here. Yeah, um, when he retired, he donated his photograph collection to us and also his scrapbooks. For example, in my hands, I'm holding a scrapbook of when he visited uh, China when he was governor back in 1986. Do you still get collections like this? Um, you know, will you, you will you get it from our current governor? Um, that's a good question. We're always open to donations. Um, so, yeah, it really depends. Um, some governors might want to donate their materials to maybe their alma mater, but, you know, we're always open to taking more collections, and they're always really popular with our researchers. And you also have copies of newspapers. Yes, we have the um, all the form of microfilm going back to the 1880s when it was called the Argus, and we get a new roll of microfilm in each month, so even if you wanted to look at, say, uh, the, far, uh, the form a few months ago, we'll have it. And who does that? Do you, do you do that, or does the do the newspapers do that? Uh, the newspapers they send us the the um, the microfilm, and we also have uh, the Grand Forks Herald. Not not the entire run, but a lot of it. And we do have some other newspapers um, here and there on microfilm as well, including the Spectrum, which is the student newspaper. Right now, we're looking at a map. It appears to be probably mid last century, maybe 1950s, um, and it gives a list of the largest department stores at the time, and many of them are no longer around, such as DeLaurency's, Herps, Hughes, Moody's, but then they also include things such as Sears and Pennies, and they're still around. They're at the mall now, no longer on Broadway, but it's interesting to see what has changed and what is still around. Yeah, they started out their life downtown. There's mm-hmm. a, an old Woolworths, one of their old five and dimes, a Piggly Wiggly, <laughs> Red Owls. Um, and, of course, uh, not far off of Broadway, there still is the Delondercy's building. It's no longer um, a department store, but, uh, you, you know, if maybe you ever wondered where that name came from. Well, it used to be a department store. Have you heard of Herb's department store? No, tell me a little bit more about this. Yeah, uh, Herb's department store was a department store on Broadway, um, it was around from the late 1800s to about the 1960s or 70s, and it was the go-to place to buy clothing, household items. So we have a great collection of photographs, um, which is a lot of fun to kind of see how a department store would arrange their displays of clothes, say, in the 1920s or 40s or 60s. So it's a pretty fun collection to take a look at, and I'm sure many people remember Herb's department store. I'm looking at a, at a pretty funny one here. Spinster Skip, what is that all about? This is from our university photographs collection. So we have photographs going back to the 1890s. And my assumption is it's probably a dance. Maybe it was where the female asked out the male. I'm not sure, but there's a lot of these fun little traditions that NDSU used to have that, you know, without these collections, we wouldn't know about. And I did do some checking, and Trista's assumptions were correct. The spinster skip was a girls-ask-guys dance, which (laughs) as recently as 2009, NDSU students recreated. Well, uh, we used to call those Sadie Hawkins dances. Uh, I think these predate that even. (laughs) Well, Sadie Hawkins goes back away. That's El Cap, for heaven's sakes. So if I want to walk through the archive, I can actually go to this physical place? Yeah, it is in the NDSCS Skills and Technology Building, uh, which is on 19th Avenue North, just off of University in North Fargo. Again, those hours, 830 to 430 during the school year and 730 to 4 in the summer. You don't need an appointment. It's obviously open to the public. I might have to go there and look at those pictures of Herb's department store. I remember that store in downtown Fargo. Dakota Date Book is next. Hi, it's us, Click and Clack, the Tapper Brothers. Do you have a parent who should no longer drive? No, but my kids claim they do. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you ever find yourself with an unwanted car for any reason, think about donating it to support this station. For all the details, call 1-866-789-TMCP. TMCP? Yeah, take my car, please! <laughs> <laughs> That's 866-789-8627. This is Dakota Datebook for March 6th. 
The state legislature passed a law on this date in 1891 that would require the teaching of Scandinavian languages at the University of North Dakota in Grand Forks. Although less than 8% of the student population was of Norwegian descent, the state's Norwegian minority began clamoring for the bill as early as 1884, calling for the hiring of a Norwegian professor of their own race, as they put it. After seven years of campaigning, they found victory in the hiring of a Norwegian professor, the Reverend George Rigg. Although the 1880 census recorded fewer than 9,000 Norwegians in North Dakota, the next decade witnessed an enormous influx. By 1900, their numbers had swelled over 80-fold to nearly 74,000, and soon nearly one of every three persons in the state was of Norwegian ancestry. As their numbers grew, so did their influence. The 1880s alone saw the emergence of 13 Norwegian-language newspapers. Local politicians or political parties controlled many of these papers, hoping to reach their new and growing constituency through their own language. Most of the immigrants, however, learned English very quickly, and the majority were soon fluent bilinguals. Despite their quick adoption of English and American customs, the Norwegians in the state hoped to preserve their own heritage as well. Passing down Norwegian cuisine and customs to their children, they also hoped to pass on the Norwegian language. To this end, they began lobbying for the bill to introduce Norwegian instruction at UND. Although opposed by the university's regency, the bill eventually passed, but the Reverend Rigg found little actual interest in the language and was forced to fill his schedule teaching English and Greek. In one semester in 1893, he had only a single student enrolled in his Norwegian class. He resigned in 1895. However, with the increasing number of Norwegians arriving here, interest grew, and a chair of Scandinavian languages was established in 1900. Norwegian continues to be taught at the university today, and demand for the subject is growing. In 2005, there were so many students registering for the courses that they had to split into two sections. Today's Dakota Date book was written by that German-Russian girl, Jamie Job. I'm Merle Pepcorn. Dakota Date Book is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota, with funding from the North Dakota Humanities Council. Well, Thursday on Hear It Now, North Dakota is looking to three-peat as a national leader in signing up weather observers. Adnan Akhuz, North Dakota State Climatologist, will join us to explain how you can be part of the Community Collaborative Rain, Hail, and Snow Network. (laughs) And Valley City State University Professor Joe Stickler will stop by to tell us about Comet Panstars and how you can observe it on Thursday night. Stephanie Leiden, a postgraduate in the UND English Department, will introduce us to the work of writer Richard Bosch, who will be appearing at the University of North Dakota's Writers' Conference. That's coming up later this month. And food co-ops are available in a number of locations in the region. There appears to be growing interest. Steve McCarger has worked for 25 years as a co-manager of a food co-op in Decorah, Iowa. He'll uh, join us to talk about more about this movement. In the meantime, the storm's over. The snow's starting to melt. It is March. It will get warmer. And think about that as you have a great evening.